0: Hello everyone, welcome to Rash's World. We have a special guest today. Uh, We have Jane Tillman. Hello, Jane Tillman, how are you? And you're the recipient of the Sigourney Award, uh, which is an independent and non-profit organization that gives awards for outstanding work. uh, It's an international reward for outstanding work that uses uh, psychoanalytic thinking as well as practice that benefits humankind. Now, can you briefly introduce yourself? Uh, Who are you? What is it that you do? And then I'd like like to delve into your work and uh, what you do as well.
1: Okay, it's uh, good to be here with you this afternoon and to be able to talk about the Sigourney Award and the Erickson Institute for Education, Research, and Advocacy of the Austin Riggs Center, which is uh, the uh, entity winning the award. So I am the um, Evelyn Stephenson Neff, Director of the Erickson Institute, and the Erickson Institute is part of the Austin Riggs Center, which is a small not-for-profit psychiatric hospital in Western Massachusetts and Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Uh, So um, I'm a psychologist and a psychoanalyst and uh, my area of research interest is in uh, suicide, both uh, what happens to uh, survivors of suicide loss, that is someone who has lost a person close to them by suicide. And I'm also interested in the process of how a person becomes suicidal.
0: And I'd like to delve into into that as well of, of your experience and your approach, but I wanna start off with resilience. If we can talk about resilience and suicide prevention as a, as our entry topic here. And so um, what, what, can, what has research shown, your research, and uh, what is your experience in terms of resilience and preventing
1: suicide? Well, resilience is an interesting construct. We talk about it a lot, uh, and it's defined in a kind of common sense way. It's the ability to, bat, uh, to bounce back from adverse adversity. Uh, so in childhood, particularly children who have uh, adverse circumstances as they're growing up, some will develop resilience or become resilient in the face of that, and some will struggle and will, will not. Uh, be as resilient. So we try to. Figure what would be out the
0: difference, sorry to What would be the difference between people who would struggle and people who won't? Is there might be a genetic factor, or what do you think is a contributing factor to that uh, that difference?
1: You know, I I don't know. Uh, certainly, social support makes a difference. Mm-hmm. I think skill building makes a difference. Uh, emotional. Uh, capacity to bear painful emotions uh, probably makes a difference, but I think we are still learning a lot about resilience. It's one of those things you sort of know it when you see it, but it's a little hard to understand uh, all the uh, psychological uh, and environmental intricacies that go into helping a person become a resilient person. Would it help to have a role
0: model, perhaps, or somebody who would guide you? You you feel like comfortable with, as, especially when you're younger and you're younger. I mean, if, if the issue is is with your parents, with somebody outside of, of the family household, perhaps.
1: I think it can help to have facilitating relationships who can model that, who can help young children learn how to bear painful experience, can help them problem solve in the face of adversity. Uh, someone who... Uh, Understands a, a developmental process in a child who can help them grow and development develop and foster the skills they need to cope uh, with adversity uh, going on. But it's also probably a, a bit a of matter of temperament, and um, you can have two children in the same family enduring the same hardships, and one might be a little more resilient than the other.
0: And and look at resilience. I mean, we are going through a pandemic, and so it's all of us are experiencing suffering, and we can see how people deal with it differently. And some people just get very angry, some people get depressed, some, see, some people get suicidal over it. So it causes um, pain and suffering in, in, in people. So what would be your um, perception of how we can deal with this type of suffering, which is different from other types of suffering, and it's a once in a century event that uh, is, is happening uh, these days?
1: Yes, well, I think uh, you know people are built differently and what works for one person is not gonna work for another person. So a lot of it is individual. How do you find uh, your best ways of coping? Some people are intensely social. They need a lot of social engagement. And so the pandemic has been particularly hard on uh, people who, who thrive on a lot of uh, social connection other people are, are very introverted, uh, need time to themselves, process things by themselves. Maybe they've had a bit of a different reaction to the pandemic. I've seen some news stories that those people find the pandemic, at least in the beginning, a little bit of a relief uh, in, in some ways. So I, I think we're all uh, wired and built uh, with our own unique and different psychologies. But uh, finding a space to cultivate one's own ability to bounce back from adversity. And there are a lot of different ways to do that. There's not one single prescription for how you uh, bounce back from hardship. Uh, But knowing uh, each person knowing a little bit about what works for them and what they might do is really important. Uh, But I do think healthy relationships uh, can be helpful
0: and absolutely in my experience has been it can go two ways especially you can either bond more with friends and family members or you get separated more and there, there are all these issues so it can it goes in one of those two directions and certain relationships uh, get stronger because of it through it and others just break off and so is, is that a common trend i mean that's I in my know. personal I
1: I don't know if it's a common trend. I think this is the interesting thing about psychology. Each person is going to have their own story. And so as a psychoanalyst, I'm interested in listening to what's the deep story of a person about their experience, uh, about their history, uh, about how they um, make sense of themselves and their suffering in the world.
0: I see it as a global stress test and they we putting here oh, on the spot and how do we react to these situations? Now I'd be uh, interested to know what are, how do we recognize suicidal states of mind and in terms of behavior? What are the warning signs or triggers that you have found in your research and your observations?
1: Well, they're common warning signs that are known but they tend to be uh, pretty common sense and uh, not so specific. So talking about death, giving away one's possessions, writing a suicide note, taking uh, preparatory acts, uh, accessing lethal means, um, things of wishing to die. Uh, These are all things that that are sort of warning signs. Uh, Certainly access to lethal means is a a big issue that uh, people wanna be concerned about, particularly firearm safety. Uh, Over half the completed suicides in this country Uh, Involved the use of a a firearm. And so, and as we've seen in the pandemic firearm sales in this country skyrocketed in 2020. So a lot more firearms available so people need to understand safe storage and and safe practices uh, in in order to uh, restrict access to lethal means particularly in a crisis. Uh, And be aware if you're in a family with adolescents or children. Uh, that those uh, firearms need to be locked up and so that kids don't have access to those.
0: And so uh, again, what, how can the family, what, how can they step in? How, what can they do about it? And that, that's exactly one of the points, making sure that younger uh, kids are, are, cannot use these weapons, that they're stored away safely. But what, are, what other steps can they take, like um, engaging in communication perhaps, or opening up about feelings, or talking about mental health? Would you think like, these are things that we should do more of? To, to avoid uh, um, um, suicides?
1: Well, yes, I think uh, to the extent that, uh, you know, suicide for some people is a very private event. And I think one of the stories we hear over and over again is people may know someone in their family is struggling or may know someone in the family is suffering. Uh, they may be concerned about suicide, but they often don't know that it's gonna be that day or that moment. So there is a an element of, um, I think shock uh, for a number of people uh, that this has happened and a lot of um, soul searching and and wishing uh, in retrospect, uh, they could have known or could have seen uh, what was gonna happen. But I think honestly, a lot of families uh, aren't able to see that the imminent danger uh, in the hours before a person acts on suicidal thoughts and and engages in suicidal behavior. I think that's one of the most painful things for survivors of suicide loss, uh, particularly family members.
0: What's the best way of moving on once uh, you've had the experience, somebody has committed suicide that's close to you. What is the best, I know it depends again on the individual, but what would be the general approach uh, you would say would help them?
1: Well, we know from research that survivors of suicide loss report uh, some experiences that are are different from people who are bereaved from other kinds of traumatic loss. So several research studies have replicated this, that survivors of suicide loss are more likely to uh, experience uh, a stigma associated with a family member who dies by suicide uh, for therapists, a stigma for having a patient die by suicide. Uh, There are issues of blame and guilt uh, needs for concealing the cause of death. Sometimes it's so uh, painful that people will conceal the cause of death or right? shame. Uh, so I think those experiences are, are common and unique to people who have lost a family member to suicide and monitoring how that plays out in family dynamics is really in, important because the, the blame dynamic, the guilt, shame, uh, all compound uh, the suffering uh, for survivors in a way that can be, um, you know, traumatic in and of itself.
0: Do, do you think that the language we use propagates that kind of feeling as well? Because when we say committing suicide, like committing a crime, so that uh, is is that contributing to to that 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 bad feeling that we have? Like, uh, I mean, the person is gone, but we have to, or people who who survive it have to deal with it. So. Would it be um, in the best interest of people to not use these specific words like committing suicide?
1: Well, that's the recommendation of the suicide research community uh, and uh, survivors of suicide loss. That that language is stigmatizing because, as you said, it does associate it with crime. So I think uh, died by suicide, uh, um, suicide behavior, suicide act, uh, um, the language and the critique of the language is changing all the time. For a while, it was okay to say completed suicide. I think that's uh, maybe not the best terminology. That, that one, yeah. Yes, I wish, I wish. Uh, but died by suicide, uh, I, I think is better, certainly less stigmatizing than uh, committed suicide. You know, But as I said, one of the unique experiences that survivors of suicide loss often uh, report is the need for concealing the cause of of death, probably uh, maybe not wanting to say commit suicide, trying to find some way to say what happened without using the stigmatizing language.
0: What about the role of religion? I mean, we have various religions who strongly condemn it. And I can see a point of, in a way that is beneficial, because so people would stay away from from doing so. But it's uh, it goes both ways. And then once the person has died, you will be left with the guilt and blame and the worry that uh, the person who died will will suffer and will have consequences in the afterlife, according to that religious tradition. So how we how should we approach uh, these things? Uh, what would well, you I think
1: religious traditions are are varied and changing. Of, of mm. course, I mean there used to be great prohibition. Uh, about what would happen in certain faiths to a person who died by suicide. Could they be buried in the same cemetery with everyone else? Or did they have to be stigmatized and isolated and kept out? I think that's less of a practice. Uh, I I think most uh, major uh, religions now recognize that suicide comes out of great pain. Uh, Often there's mental illness involved in suicide. And so uh, people are treated less like criminals uh than they are as as people in in need of our our understanding and our care uh and our sorrow what would be
0: the psychoanalytic approach here i mean Freud's side as an aggression as an internalized aggression i think and as a like melancholy as a loss of, of some maybe someone or something that was important to you and do you see it as well as a, as a form of aggression against oneself as a, as an act that comes out of hatred
1: I don't know if it comes out of hatred. I think it comes out of pain. And certainly uh, it takes a lot to end one's life. Uh, Thomas Joiner, who's a very prominent uh, suicidologist or suicide researcher, you know, makes the point in his book about the interpersonal theory of suicide that it's not easy uh, to kill oneself. You, you have to overcome a, a tremendous life instinct or, or barrier uh, to, to do that. Uh, so there is aggression involved, there's pain involved, despair, uh, impulsivity, uh, in different combinations for different people. Um, And it's important to try to focus if you're working with someone who has survived a a suicide attempt, to try to understand what it was they were feeling in the moments before, what led up to that, so that maybe they can recognize Uh, If they get into that state again, that they will have some more attenuated or identifiable warning signs.
0: Uh, a topic I'm very interested in myself is the role of trauma and, and um, I, I believe that trauma can be often linked to, to like an excess of trauma, not being able to cope with the trauma that is persistent, that can turn into a, a type of self-loathing perhaps or a feeling out of place uh, with the rest of the world. So um, what can we do in terms of trauma to, um, to avoid getting to that suicidal stage uh, in terms of people and patients?
1: Well, I think trauma uh, is um, increasing and we're increasingly aware of the effects of childhood trauma or adverse childhood experience and certainly adult trauma. My colleagues in Boston and the Boston Suicide Study Group have written um, several papers about the role of trauma and suicidality and the role particularly of flashbacks and how uh, excruciating and and how that affects a person's ability to problem solve and to think clearly. they're in that kind of pain Uh, and that can escalate in a hurry uh, in a suicide crisis.
0: Mm -hmm. And it it seems that 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 will start with a fantasy and then um, once you you build it it could turn it potentially into into a more dangerous act which is the actual act of of suicide. So um, should people be concerned if they have these kind of um, say fantasies of, of suicide, should, should that be like a warning sign or to look, like to look for help specifically?
1: I think it's always something to pay attention to. Suicide fantasies and suicidal ideation is much more common than suicide behaviors and suicide intentions. Uh, so uh, sometimes those are just passing thoughts and there's no real intention. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just the working of our, our mind. But if it becomes a preoccupation or if a person feels like Uh, It's it's something they might act on then certainly I think getting help is really important in that circumstance.
0: And I think that the the good side again of this pandemic, it has like uh, shown a light on um, mental health, the importance of it. The relevance of it, and the importance of talking about it and dealing with it. And um, we didn't see it before, but now we have more and more people openly talking about celebrities talking about that. And I think that is definitely a step in the right direction of of opening these discussions to overcome the stigma that is still attached to it in in, in many ways.
1: Yes, I I think the Talk Saves Lives uh, is a program that the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention uh, has developed and the talk saves lives helps people learn how to uh, speak about these feelings and speak about um, in our communities, the issue of suicide.
0: And that is the, the issue with social media too, because a lot of times what we see in social media is happy people enjoying themselves, being on vacation, having a good time, but it's it's also shifted in like people talking about their pains and their suffering, people being more honest in uh, using technology to, to share that. And I think the importance of sharing that is that you can maybe not identify with those happy rich people, but you can identify with the suffering and it gives you a confirmation that, oh, I'm not alone and this is quote unquote normal because um, this is some a reality currently and I think if, if people say they're constantly happy uh, under, under the circumstances I don't
1: actually believe them Well perhaps they are perhaps they're not yeah. uh, but social media is complicated right it can be used for tremendous good and social mm-hmm. support and information exchange but there's some evidence that the uh, you know Instagram Facebook, have algorithms that steer young people towards more and more pernicious, destructive topics. And so the algorithms of social media really need to be scrutinized, uh, I think, in terms of how they steer distressed people uh, to more destructive content.
0: And it would increase their distress and, uh, yeah. Yeah,
1: it would be nice to steer people who are uh, towards a kind of support, And I think companies perhaps are working on this, but it's complicated because they understand which algorithms produce uh, monetary gain. Mm
0: But it's also with with younger people, I find, especially children, it's so important that parents get involved and with them and talk to them and and uh, really discuss these things and talk openly about it. I mean, this uh, um, there are many taboo topics in in families, and I think that is the wrong approach. And uh, again, depending on their age, but you do want to address various issues like that because they will find it anyhow. With the access to technology so why not openly talk about it whether it's sexuality whether it's suicide and i think um, people need to have these conversations otherwise they will get misinformation either from friends or from from technology and social media yes and so um, how can we change that attitude of say parents what can we do to to make them get involved because I I find a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what independence means uh, for their child because it doesn't mean that they have to figure out things on their own and there you are you're old enough it it is not that I mean it's it's really giving them the the space but also being for them emotionally and and protecting them and holding them because that's why they they still need you and um my son uh, had an interesting comment about because i i I recently lost uh, my dad but he says uh "When when you lose both of your parents are you an orphan and i said no well orphan is when you lose them at a young age but not so much at an older age but you know it makes sense because in a sense we do become orphans when we yes. lose both our parents. So I found that fascinating. But at the same time, it's the children that we really need to work with them and kind of get them to think about these things.
1: Right. Critical you know, thinking think
0: as well as emotion, yeah.
1: Parenting is a tough task. Parenting is really, really tough and uh, you know, different families have different cultures and different cultures have different norms and different ways of understanding what can be talked about and what what can't. Uh, But hopefully um, mental health can be talked about. And and certainly if there's a situation of danger, one one hopes um, that can be talked about, but parents are kind of overwhelmed in the pandemic. They have a lot going on to expect them to be school teachers, psychotherapists, coaches and everything else is is a tall order
0: and that is a stress test where we have to rise to the occasion but um, once we do and it, it, it is um, empowering I think because yeah. it it shows us that how much we are actually capable each of us are capable of it and you do not need to be a, a psychologist a psychotherapist these are things that I think are, are vital they should be our day-to-day life the importance of expressing emotions of of sharing your thoughts, feelings and so they don't turn into another direction or fantasize about it that they, they, they feel comfortable sharing that uh, with with the, uh, the parents or role models hopefully cool. yeah And so um, going back to your psychoanalysis, the importance of childhood I think do you, do you think that if we really, Find a way and of uh, being good enough parents to, to to put it that way, to um protect and guide our children. Could we um bring down uh, cases of uh, of suicide and of opioid uh, overdoses and so on by by really um, um having a strong relationship with them.
1: Parenting is important, but uh, children grow up and they go to school. The environment that we're in is important. Social media is important. Uh, The uh, peer relationships are important. Uh, So parenting is a a very important piece of the puzzle, but it's not all on the parents, right? There's a a social uh, element and a a social um, environment that is really important uh, beyond the home. It's uh, certainly important in the home, but also beyond the home. You know, want to be concerned about bullying, want to be uh, concerned uh, about uh, loneliness and isolation and difficulty with social skills and children who have not only mental health problems, but maybe physical health problems. And then I think just the the basics. Uh, do, there's a lot of food insecurity uh, in this country. Do people have access to nutrition? Uh, to stable housing, I I think uh, uh, there are a lot of factors that go into creating the conditions for uh, child development.
0: But my problem here is with education because they don't focus enough on mental health and coping strategies and so on. So the, where does the child learn it? It has to be often from the home because that is the, the, the main place where they would learn about these things. And I think kind of opening up and uh, using it and changing maybe the curriculum of uh, of schools to to, to talk about that. I mean, what you're learning in school is, is certain skills that I think, okay, a lot of it is not gonna be necessary for your future life. And the thing that is important, not so much how, how much money you will make and so on, but how happy, how content, how, how you can cope with the, uh, with uh, stress and, uh, and, and illness and adversities, that is not really taught in, in the way that I would like to see it at schools.
1: Uh, You know, I I think different school systems have different emphasis on in their curriculum. So it's it's Mm -hmm. probably there's probably a wide range of difference in terms of what a child can expect to encounter in any different any school system
0: kind of a standardized uh, rule of that, we need to do more of this, but it is moving in that direction, I think with with patience and persistence. Uh, one thing I wanna look at too is uh, assisted suicide, euthanasia, which is taking it in a different direction. And I'd like to know your, your thoughts and opinions on that and uh, because it changes a bit the panorama of our discussion.
1: It, it does, you know, I'm not an expert on that and uh, it's, it's not my field. I don't really uh, have an, a, a professional opinion uh, about that, that's a very complicated uh, mm-hmm. issue that is uh, sort of out of my realm of expertise. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, for sure. And so um, just on a, on a personal note, how did um, like psychoanalysis um, affect you personally? How did you discover it, develop it? Because I, I found like when I took it seriously of like really studying it and uh, applying it to myself, uh, it changed everything for me, like many, many things. And just my relationships with others, with myself first uh, and then others as well. And it's it's such a empowering, liberating feeling once you can move past this, the, the trauma or the child version that you have of yourself and changing the unconscious in many ways, rewriting it and going in a different direction in your life. And it, it opens up all these pathways that you thought were closed before. So that's my, my personal experience of it. But how did you find it, stumble upon it, develop it uh, maybe uh, years ago? But what, what would you say? Like, what was the- I,
1: I think I, I, I would say, I, I probably stumbled into it. I was very fortunate uh, to go to graduate school A number of years ago at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville and that was a very psychoanalytically psychodynamically uh inclined training program uh Mm -hmm. at that time and so my very first class on my very first day of class uh there we were reading a paper by Freud which you would I think not really find in in any graduate program in clinical psychology these days uh but uh I was fortunate to go to that program, and have some wonderful teachers and supervisors, and it just made sense to me. Uh, You can see people uh, over time who uh, are repeating certain maladaptive behaviors over and over again, uh, and they don't quite understand why or what it's about. uh, Maybe they're trying to understand or learn something about a conflict from the past. And once you have the concept of the unconscious, uh, as something to work with the world opens up the mind opens up in a different way uh, about the, the ways we are acting uh, that are out of our awareness and uh, the way the past is funneling into the present in ways that might be out of our awareness that would be good to know about it it opens up a, a different kind of freedom of knowing about oneself uh,
0: there again, stereotypes about it and, and uh, judgments and uh, prejudices against that. And again, that's something we should change in, in school, especially in psychology. They have to talk about it. They have to address it. The, the changing effect for me was also, I always knew about um, Freud and so on, because I, I studied it, I was a minor in, at my college, and I loved it. I enjoyed it but I never took it really seriously because nobody else took it seriously until just recently, a few years ago, I, I talked to a, a colleague of mine who's a, who teaches psychology and, um, I said, and I said talked about the unconscious and he says, yes, it's true. And, and that kind of confirmation that yes, it's true is like, maybe I should take this seriously. And once I discovered it for myself, it again changed everything. But it's, if, it ha- if he had said, I don't think it's true some years back, I probably would not be here so it's it's that kind of like maybe like small affirmations that we need to to kind of guide us in the right direction and that is my my purpose and my goal here with with my podcast is like to guide people and tell them this is true and it will change your life for sure
1: well I think psychoanalysis has been rebranded and repackaged mm-hmm. under different names because now psychoanalysis oddly has uh, had been in a stigmatized uh, position within mental health uh, in various places, uh, right? But the unconscious now goes by the name of uh, implicit cognition uh, versus explicit cognition. So consciousness and unconsciousness rebranded now as implicit and explicit. Uh, What uh, psychoanalysts might refer to as defenses uh, that help us navigate the world. I think that our cognitive behavioral colleagues would call coping mechanisms. You know, so the, the concepts are, are there, but they're, they're rebranded uh, in different ways. It sort of sets up at times a kind of these two uh, branches of the field uh, don't really share anything in common, but that's not true.
0: I find it uh, slightly dishonest when, to, when you're doing it and you're not giving the person credit I and mean, we talk about plagiarism and to, to me that is that is a case of it and where, where I, I do see that cognitive behavioral therapy is moving in the, in the correct direction, I would say, into the, the realms of psychoanalysis. But I think we have to give credit. I mean it's, it's the idea of also, uh, freud yes he's he's a human being and yes there are things we might not agree with but i mean it's he's so important the same way darwin is important for for the revolution they brought about and so there there's also this tendency of like you have to be 100% right or else we will dismiss you and i think that is that is not correct we have to we have to acknowledge the strengths and focus on that and and really give people credit who who made an impact and For me, I I am eternally grateful for these discoveries because it helped me and uh, I'm a fan, we could say, because of it and I I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, psychoanalysis has changed and grown since Freud's time. Mm -hmm. It often gets uh, packaged as psychoanalysis equals Freud. Well, that's its origin, Mm -hmm. but uh, like any science, uh, knowledge builds, old ideas are disproven, new ideas emerge. Uh, and things hopefully advance. And I, I, I think uh, when people are dismissive of psychoanalysis, I think they're being dismissive of a psychoanalysis of the maybe 1940s and 50s. And psychoanalysis today can look quite different. Exactly. Uh, it's not so much a one-person psychology anymore. It's a two-person psychology. There are uh, people who practice in different, different ways, object relations, psycho- yeah. psychoanalysis, or relational, or intersubjective psychoanalysis or the Lacanians. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a broader field of inquiry and knowledge now.
0: But one thing that amuses me is when he comes back at you. So Freud would be psychoanalyzed and then he has to explain, well, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. And, and so I, I, that's what you get too when, when you create something so important, it can backfire in a way where you get analyzed as well. And so I, I find that very fascinating. Thank you very much for your discussion. Thank you for uh, sharing your, uh, your insights. Um, uh, you have gotten and well deserved the Sigourney Award for um, uh, creating more awareness about uh, psychoanalysis and uh, applying it again to, to various other fields. And uh, I think that's highly commendable. We need more of this. We need more of, of people like you. So thank you so much for, for being on this show. Thank you so much for talking to me about your, your research, your interests, yeah. and your opinions.
1: I, I just want to clarify that I did not win the Sigourney Award. The Erickson Institute won it, and the Erickson Institute is just a gem of the Austin Riggs Center. It represents the work of a lot of people. Uh, and in, you, are you are the yes, director.
0: Yes, but it,
1: the award is, mm-hmm. is not uh, for, for my work in suicide. Mm-hmm. The award is for a, a body of work over 10 years of distinguished scholars in all, all sorts of disciplines.
0: So I will include them too, but I talk to you and your contributions are hugely important too. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Take care.